Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Asad, one of the co-hosts of the channel and your host for our conversation today. Our guest today is Alex Dika Segerman, and we'll be talking about her first book, Modernism on the Nile, Art in Egypt Between the Islamic and the Contemporary. Dr. Segerman is an assistant professor of Islamic art history at Rutgers Newark University. She received her PhD from Yale University in the history of art, and she has held postdoctoral fellowships at Smith College, Hampshire College, and Yale. Dr. Segerman's work explores modern art, modern Islamic art history, and specifically the intersections between the modern and the Islamic. She has done research on Middle Eastern art movements and currently teaches courses on the art and architecture of the Islamic world. Global and modern contemporary art, as well as representations of gender and sexuality in and of the modern Middle East. Her book analyzes Egypt's modernist art movement through the late 19th century up until the 1960s and demonstrates the interconnectedness of this movement with the constellation of art movements outside of Egypt. She also argues that the diverse major Egyptian artists of the era that she studies, while they may have appeared to be secular, they in fact reflected the subtle but essential inflection of Islam as a faith, as a history, as a lived experience, all in the overarching development of Middle Eastern modernity. Based on extensive research in Egypt, Europe, and the United States, her book presents a compelling argument for the importance of Muslim networks to global modernism. Without further ado, I now welcome Dr. Alex Dika Segerman to our podcast. Welcome, Alex. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So Alex, as you may know, here at the network, we always begin with a biographical sketch of our authors. Could you share a little bit about your journey and what led you here? Why modern Islamic art history and why this book? That's a great question. And there's always so many different ways to tell one's scholarly trajectory. Uh, So I was an undergraduate at Columbia Uh, during 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq um, in 2001 and 2003. So uh, I was also an art history major there. So it was very kind of while I was studying art history, there was a lot going on politically, um, both in the United States and around the globe. And uh, I got increasingly interested in the Middle East and in Islam and took many courses there. Uh, And in particular, I was motivated to do that because my grandfather was Muslim, uh, an immigrant from Albania. And that had always just kind of been like a very normal, uneventful thing in my life until until those uh, really important political, uh, global political events in, in the early 2000s. So that kind of spurred me um, to study this part of the world. And I saw there was a really big gap in the scholarship about modernity in the Middle East. And that is what eventually brought me to Egypt um, to write this book. Well, thank you for that, Alex. I'd like to begin with a question on uh, methodology and framework. 
Um, now, you take great caution in how you frame your study of Egyptian modernity and Egyptian modernism, words that we're going to unpack um, later on in this interview. So you, you ground your work in the discipline of history. And lately, we're beginning to see a, a quote unquote, a global turn in, in history, generally speaking, uh, including in art history, of course. Um, scholars are now attempting to account for non-European or non-Western histories. Um, but in your book, you, you, you oppose the term global. Um, you argue that the term still carries the subtext of non-white and non-Western. And at the same time, you also take issue with the term transnational, um, which is also another emerging popular term in the discourse. Um, and so the, the expression that you use and that uh, if listeners caught it early on was constellation or constellational. Um, you say that art history or modern Egyptian art history um, was part of a constellation of artistic modernisms of the time. Um, you say this term is less than global, but more than transnational. And so I was wondering um, if you could explain your critique of global and transnational and why you prefer to say constellational instead. Uh, yeah, that uh, is a really important um, framework for the book. And I was really searching for something that really clearly articulated and described the phenomenon that I saw occurring in Egypt's modern art movement over a hundred year span. So because I wasn't focusing on uh, one artist or one decade, it was really a very large span of time. It, it was rather challenging to find a way to ca characterize um, the movement over, over about a hundred years. So I, I toyed with the idea of global and transnational, but in terms of really characterizing the specificities of this movement, neither of those words seem to, to be able to express what exactly was going on. Uh, global is a very helpful word, and I'm not saying that it's not a good word or that it doesn't have. Um, clearly, it has a place um, in, in the scholarship, and I definitely see my book as being part of global modernisms, which is the... the um, the current name for the subfield, but even in that global modernism, global is really uh, what it really means in that construction is non-Western, non-European, or non-white. So even though globe ostensibly encompasses the whole globe, um, in that construction, what you're really referring to is things that are not in the current Euro-American canon of modernist art history. So it's kind of a tricky word. Um, and it also, uh, I think it also kind of evokes this, this idea of intercon like kind of like the internet today, this, um, extreme interconnectedness all over the world. And that was really not what was going on in, um, in modernism in Egypt, which had much more finite connections between artists, um, artworks and, um, art institutions. Uh, so transnational is another word that has been used um, a little less so in art history, but definitely within within the humanities um, more broadly. But I found that that was actually a little bit too limiting for the artists and the artworks that I was working on because it really uh, privileges the nation state and sovereign structures of uh, dictating how people move between places. And that didn't really work either because I had some artists who, like Abdelhadi El Ghazar, he goes to, to Italy on government scholarship to study there. Um, so he's, you know, transnationally going from 
Egypt to Italy. But then when he's in Italy, he skips out on his classes, kind of gets in trouble um, because he starts traveling to London, uh, Florence. He goes to Munich. Um, There's this great picture that I include in the book of him outside a Gauguin exhibition in Munich. You know, so he's he's breaking those official routes um, and going to other places. So I chose Constellational because it really it defines both the finite connections that these artists and artworks had. Um, you know, they weren't connected all the time everywhere. Uh, it really says like, well, they went to like these particular spots and they reference these particular things. Um, and then it also is part of my argument that those maps. Uh, of connections are actually in the artworks. Um, so it's not just that Gazar went to Italy and then Munich, but that he tells us in his artworks and he makes it visual in the artwork that um, that those are the things that he wants us to recognize. So uh, um, that is that is why I tried to hone in on this idea of constellational um, as the uniting characteristic of this modernist art movement, which I know definitely pertains to Egyptian modernism. And my goal is to develop this framework so that it could hypothetically be applied in other contexts. Um, Thank you for that brilliant explanation. I guess as a follow-up to that, I wanted to ask how you frame, quote, Islam and, quote, Islamic in your book. Um, because those are also important terms that you deploy. And I was wondering if you could clarify your approach to them and how you bring these categories to bear into conversation with the Nahda movement of the time and with Arab Islamic modernity of the mid-19th century, uh, more broadly speaking. Okay, that's a really gigantic question. (laughs) So uh, I don't know if I'll, I mean, I feel like that might just require another whole book (laughs) to answer it. Um, So to begin with, you know, how I frame Islam and Islamic, um, because of the current um, divisions within subfields in art history, Modern Egyptian art, and this isn't, so I know this is specific to art history, so there might be some listeners out there from other disciplines, and every every discipline has its own special weird way of dividing its subfield. So in art history, we have Islamic art history, and we have modernist art history. And modernist art history 19, focuses on the 19th and 20th centuries, mostly from a Euro-American perspective, a really a, a Paris-centric perspective. And this is currently being reworked and the reinstallation of the Museum of Modern Art has, you know, has made little inroads to to complicating that traditional narrative. Um, And then we have Islamic art history. So Islamic art history is a subfield of of art history and has very particular boundaries and connotations. And Egyptian modernism and modernism in broadly has not been included in that story of Islamic art history. Um, so it's important for me to, to pinpoint in the book that, you know, while Islamic art, art history has these very particular parameters, we need, we need to at least ask the question, you know, does Egyptian modernism, does modernism from this, from the Islamic world deserve a spot? Does, is it, does it fit within this larger category? Um, and that, that idea of Islamic art is very, actually very different from uh, the Islam as an idea, as a religion, and as a lived experience that the artists that I study engage with. So as I note in the introduction, 
none of the works that I look at in this book are devotional. None of them are used for religious practice. Um, Occasionally, they'll have an overt religious idea or story. For instance, in the work of Abdelhadi Al-Ghazar, he uh, has a painting of Zuleikha, which is a you know direct reference to religious figure. Uh, but other than that, you know these these artworks are not religious artworks, and I'm not claiming that they are. However, they do reference the religion of Islam um, and the daily practice of Muslims in the contemporary context of Egypt that they were living through. So. Uh, I, I detail very specifically in the introduction that we need to engage with, you know, how, how, or we need to question how these artists were engaging with Islam and really understand that it is possible for the artists to think about Islam, to talk about it, to reference it without being dominated by it. Like the, these artworks are not characterized by their, that's not the main defining characteristic of this artwork. It's not a modern Islamic art movement, um, but they do engage with it, just like modernist art um, practitioners in Paris and New York are also engaged with the histories of religious painting um, because they're in that same, they're in that, in that, um, in that history. So they're all artists, you know, are engaging with these different religious traditions, particularly when they're engaging with uh, iconographies or visual traditions associated with those religious traditions. And we need to question that and engage with that and understand that like it's in the middle, like it doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be secular or religious. It can kind of reference religion, but not be defined by it. And so that, that is, um, that is how I frame Islam and Islamic in the introduction. So would you like me to also, you had a second part to that question, but. Yeah, I think that part, we're going to get to that throughout the the, uh, interview. I really appreciate that you gave us uh, the the methodology and the framework, and now we can have a a better sense of where we're going on this journey, because now I want to move on to the nuts and bolts of the actual substance of your book. And so just starting out with your first chapter, you describe how the, Egypt, the, the Egyptian modern art movement became established outside of the traditional centers of modernism. And you say that, you know, through the processes of modernization, the structure of Egyptian art was altered in that it wasn't only produced and consumed by the elite anymore. Um, and to use a term that you use in, in the chapter, you say Egyptian art became diagonal in, in that it rejected it, quote, rejected a teleological development originating in either modern or Islamic art history. And it was neither fine arts imported from European painting and sculpture, nor wholly born from local Islamic art. And you identify a few people, a few interesting people who sort of led the, led this shift. You, you know, Princess Nazli Fazli, Yaqub San, Sanua, Sheikh Muhammad Abdu. Um, and so I was wondering if you could um, talk to us a little bit about how this Egyptian art movement through these individuals uh, and and others became established outside of these traditional centers. Yeah. Uh, so getting back to that, you know, that kind of at, at many points in the book, I'm grappling with the uh, traditional 20th century narratives of modernist art history um, because they're really embedded in the methodology of art history. So there's, you know, these Eurocentric narratives of artists 
going from Corbet and Manet to Van Gogh, Picasso, uh, Kandinsky to Pollock, that kind of very clear teleology um, it really has influenced art historical methodology. So at many points in the book, I kind of grapple with, you know, how, how do we unstick ourselves from that very powerful narrative? Um, and one thing, one way that Egyptian modernism also really has the power to innovate, not only how, not only what is included in that, in the narrative of modernist art history, but also how we do that art history, the methodology of that is that it really doesn't come out of this straight line of development in painting or development in sculpture. That first chapter where I talk about Princess Nazli Fazil, who was a, um, she wasn't an artist per se, but she took lots of photographs of herself and uh, had a, a cultural salon in Cairo. Uh, Yakub Sanua was a uh, satirical illustrator and journalist. And Sheikh Mohammed Abdu was a religious uh, was a religious scholar who talked about painting and sculpture. So these are kind of like the diverse uh, makers and cultural producers of the 19th century that definitely don't you know they're not painters um, who then go on to influence the painters of the 20th century. They're dealing with uh, a diversity of material, visual and material culture. For instance, uh, photography was very important in addition to uh, prints like lithography and engraving um, and not the ephemera of modern of of material modernity in the 19th century was really formed the basis, as I argue in the book, formed the basis for the modern art move, fine arts movement of the 20th century. So I want to ask you now about Mahmoud Mukhtar, and I want to move the conversation from 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 here up to Egyptian nationalism and how and how that developed through uh, some of some of his artwork. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about who he was and what sort of artistic styles he drew from, and how his work had significance for the the development and the promotion of Egyptian nationalism within uh, Egyptian modern art. Yeah, Mahmoud Mokhtar uh, was a what is the most famous sculptor of 20th century Egypt. He has a museum dedicated to his artwork in Cairo today and designed by a famous uh, architect, Ramses Wasawasef. Um, so that, you know, it's still a place that you can go and visit today. And also his major monument, Nahdat Mas. Uh, Egypt's re- um, in English, Egypt's reawakening is a major sculpture uh, that is still very much a potent symbol in contemporary Egypt and very much visible today. It's right outside Cairo University. Um, so he came from a agricultural family uh, in the Nile Delta, and he moved with his mother to Cairo as a young boy. And um, part of his importance or role as a modern artist in Egypt is not only his artwork, but also this very important myth-making that he and his biographers and his critics developed about him. So there's this very, very well-known narrative about how he used to form uh, sculptures out of mud on the Nile tributaries uh, in the Nile Delta. And he was kind of this prodigy who was making these small sculptures from a year early age, like right out of the land of Egypt. Um, and 
he uh who knows if that's actually true it's repeated over and over by all of his biographers. And it's really, I mean, it's like one of those facts that would be almost impossible to figure out if it was actually true, but it is important. And that becomes part of this myth of, of his, um, of his upbringing and how he came to be this really important sculptor. So he went to the, he was one of the first students at the new school of fine arts in Cairo, which had opened in 1908. So the same, right around the same time as uh, Cairo University opened. Uh, prince Yusuf Kamil, who was a wealthy prince of the royal family, uh, opened this this art school uh, in 1908, and sculpture was one of the category, one of the um, areas of study there. And then Mukhtar graduated at the top of his class, and because he did, uh, the prince sent him to Paris. Uh, so he went to Paris, and from 1912 to 1914 was in the studio of Jules uh, Félix Coutin, uh, who was a prominent academic sculptor in France who actually designed the sculptures that are outside, that are um, on the facade of Grand Central Terminal in New York City, which is kind of a cool factoid um, that connect, connects us um, to, this, to this history. So Mokhtar, you know, he was, he, so he's really embedded in this academic training, French academic training. And part of that French academic training was that you studied from live nude models and you also studied from classical sculpture. So they would have nude models come to the studio and they would also uh, study Greek and Roman sculptures. So because he was Egyptian, uh, the, the other classmates at the school really associated him with ancient Egypt. So when he was in his uh, days at the in, in Cairo, he made these little sculptures that had more to do with contemporary Egyptian society. One one little sculpture called Ibn al Balid, which is you know boy boy of the country, just kind of like the the boy of the street. And then he had another one named Halwa bint al Azwar, um, named after a a, a uh, Arab female Arab fighter um, in the early days of Islam. So he had these kind of more um, references to Arab, Islamic, Egyptian histories. But when he went to Paris, he immediately got associated with ancient Egypt. So he began to bring that more into his artwork. And with Nahdat Mas, uh, Egypt's reawakening, he brings in that, that image of the Sphinx um, into, his, into, into the artwork and um, also the image of the peasant, which had, by that time had become a very important nationalist symbol. And so as I argue in the book, He's, you know, he's not only he's not only participating in this nationalism, but he's producing it and he's giving the Egyptian populace a way to visualize that nationalism, to visualize the anti-colonial sentiment that had been that had been the impetus for the 1919 revolution and those protests and, um, you know, producing a new visuality for this for this new nation state. So now let's talk about the other Mahmoud, Mahmoud Saeed, the Alexandrian oil painter. His art, you say, portrayed Alexandria's cosmopolitan ladies and gentlemen, nudes from the lower classes, and stylized landscapes of the world outside Alexandria. And you use these three sort of genres to trace his work, portraits, nudes, and landscapes. Um, And as I was reading this, I was wondering how, you know, issues of class and race and gender uh, 
came to bear on his work and how his work was received. Um, and, and you pointed out that, it, that his work also signified a transition between colonial to post-colonial Egypt. Um, and so I was just wondering how, how that process played out um, through Mahmoud Said. Yeah, Mahmoud Said is a weird one. Uh, he he is one of the most uh, both of these artists, but Mahmoud Said in particular has become very very hot on the uh, art market, and his paintings have been selling for um, very high prices at the auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's. And just a couple years ago, they a catalog raisonné, really gorgeous catalog raisonné, um, came out on Mahmoud Said, which basically has all of the paintings, uh, all of his paintings um, that he and drawings that he ever produced. Uh, that's what a catalog raisonné is. It could kind of collect all of the paintings and drawings ever produced by an artist. Um, and so, you know, he's really very popular. His paintings are so attractive. They're really lush. The oil painting is very thick and vibrant. And they depict these, you know, very beautiful and alluring scenes of, you know, wealthy people in Alexandria or lush Lebanese countryside or, um, and then also these very, very seductive nudes. Uh, And so, they're really overly sexualized. Uh, the bodies in the nudes really kind of, uh, there is at least the last time I was there at the Mahmoud Said Museum in Alexandria. So Mahmoud Said's family lived in a villa in Alexandria. And when his family left in the night, I think it's the 1970s, they gave the museum, they gave the villa and all the paintings to the state. And so now the museum is in the villa that his family once lived in. Uh, and there was a room in there dedicated just to the to the nude paintings. Um, but there's this kind of weirdness. There's a really stark divide between the portraits of the elite community in Alexandria, lawyers, architects, art, other artists, uh, and wealthy women, both in his family and extended family and others, uh, who really don't, their bodies kind of really dissolve or disappear underneath their very luxurious clothing. And then there's a stark divide between the whiteness that he's really developing this elite Mediterranean community connected to France and Italy and other uh, Mediterranean locales. Uh, there's a contrast between that and the nudes, who most often have darker skin uh, than the people in the portraits. And so this chapter was really trying to work that out. You know, why why did he do that? What is um, what exactly is going on, and why are they so overtly sexualized? And so I I I interpret them in through a visual in depth visual analysis that they they evince a kind of fear of of the fecundity of the fertility or the power of those those lower classes of the indigenous classes who often had darker skin than the upper class um, community uh, who were often descended from the Turkish, uh, the Turkish elite of the 19th century. So that there's this fear of the rising indigenous classes and um, kind of this, this is an important time for Egyptian art because we're going to start seeing the artists moving away from participating in that French academic painting, 
which was not only important for Egypt, but was important worldwide. Uh, people, uh, artists all over the world were kind of looking to Paris, looking to the French academic painting tradition as, as a point of reference. We're going to start to see the artists move away from that um, to other sorts of uh, visual, visual and aesthetic techniques after the 1952 revolution. So bringing this back to our discussion of, quote, the Islamic, I wanted to discuss the return of religious uh, symbolism on modern Egyptian art, specifically through the work of Abdul Hadi al-Ghazar, whom you mentioned earlier in this interview. You dedicate a chapter to his work. You write that mystical symbols like the hand of Fatima and al-Khidr allowed Ghazar to express an anti-colonial Egyptian identity and a knowledge of the post-surrealist search for truth in local mystical spaces, uh, end quote. And that during his time, the market even required him to be both national and international simultaneously. And these identities, in fact, upheld each other. Could you briefly touch on this for us? Yeah, so this is a really important point in the book, especially vis-a-vis uh, -vis that discussion of you know what makes something is part of the subfield of Islamic art history and maybe how that diverges from how certain art artists are actively engaging with uh, Islam as an idea or as a religion or as a lived practice. So here, uh, Ghazar is in works like uh, The Green Man, in which he references the hand of Fatima and Al-Khidr, uh, as well as works like the story of Zuleikha, again, that is referencing a, um, a religious story. He's referencing those, those traditions, but he is absolutely not engaging with what we would traditionally think of as Islamic art or visual culture. Uh, there's no Thuluth calligraphy or geometric design or uh, minarets. There's none of those sort of what we might see as um, visual indicators or visual symbols of Islamic art, um, stylistic, stylistic indicators of Islamic art um, as defined by the Euro-American Academy. Um, so in, in this way, he's moving towards, he's moving towards religious references, but he's really doing it with a, uh, as a post-surrealist uh, move towards the mystical, which, ha as I mentioned in the book, also occurred in other in other places in the world. For instance, Wilfredo Lamb, who is a modernist painter um, from Cuba, uh, um, around the same time starts. He was part of the surrealist movement. He knew Picasso. He was working in between Paris and Cuba. And he starts to incorporate images of Santeria into his paintings and his work. So in a similar way, both these artists are using the, the, the lessons of surrealism, this turn to uh, the unconscious, the, the insane, the childlike. They're adding the mystical to that as a way to search for truth. Um, through art. And so Ghazar was part of a art group called the, the Contemporary Art Group. And they had specific statements in which they wanted to return to uh, an art that was more accessible for the masses, um, that talked more about Egypt specifically to move away from the elitism and the, and the Parisia, Parisian centrism of the per previous decades to, to something that was more 
authentically Egyptian. And one way he does that is by blending these surrealist ideas with um, references to local mystical traditions. And in that way, he's really demonstrating that constellational modernism, right? So he's referencing these very specific local mystical traditions, not some kind of uh, broadly understood uh, idea of Islamic art, but really very specific local stories and traditions with uh, the lessons of surrealism. So he, again, he's showing us that he's both knowledgeable about what's going on locally, both culturally and politically, and also what is going on um, in Paris and in other parts of the world as the surrealist movement was a, and this is one part where (laughs) global might be a good word. It was a truly, truly, um, well, maybe not truly, it wasn't in every place of the globe, but was really widespread in many, many major capitals um, in the mid 20th century. So in your fifth chapter, you take a wider temporal view of visual and modern art in Egypt. Um, You trace the arc of the Felaha, or the peasant woman, from the mid-18th century until the mid-20th century. And you ask some of the questions you ask in your book, and I'll just just repeat them here. You ask, you know, where did she come from? What what did her symbol represent? Um, What were the broader implications? Um, How did this symbol, which was originally a colonial image become so central to Egyptian nationalism. Um, and what, what essentially, what consequences did that lead to? Um, what ramifications did it have? Um, and I was wondering if you can briefly share your findings uh, on that, these questions for us. I know it's also another gigantic question, but just to, we can very briefly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So the peasant woman, where did she come from? She, Well, there's obviously peasant women. There actually were women in Egypt um, who dressed in this way. And so I I also really focus not just on the peasant woman, but this very prevalent image of the peasant woman and a water jug. Uh, The shape of the water jug tends to differ throughout the decades and is not always steady. But very often it is a balas uh, water jug, which is this particular kind of very large uh, um, earthenware jug that is made. The name comes from the place it's made, Daryl Balas, uh, which is near Luxor. So uh, she's she's often depicted with this very large water jug, which women would use to carry water from the Nile to their homes. So there is that original. Actually, you know, actually there were women who looked like this, who uh, who who had these water jugs. Um, But the image of her comes from colonial travel literature. And so this is, this is a kind of, it comes back to the first chapter in that it charts a way in which this uh, very potent visual imagery and visual symbols get developed through uh, mainly through print, through the distribution of prints and works on paper, kind of the ephemera of the colonial interactions uh, first, starting out, the earliest representation I could find was in a British, uh, a British travel journal by Richard Dalton in the late 18th century, uh, and then she moves. This image moves as the technologies of image making develop through the through the through the decades. She flips from being in engraved prints in books to being in photographs and then in paintings. Um, And she eventually ends up very, very prevalent in Egyptian visual culture 
And then uh, as a main symbol in uh, modernist art uh, of Mukhtar, of Said, of, and then I end with these uh, female Egyptian artists of the 1950s and 60s. Um, so this really, again, shows that constellational modernism and how there isn't a stark, there really wasn't a stark divide between a European visual culture and a North African visual culture, but very, a lot of very porous boundaries of production that went, that traveled throughout the region. And that is the history that makes that modernism of the 20th century possible. And then in the book, I argue that the potency of this image comes from anxieties, both colonial and national, around the water resources in Egypt. So the Suez Canal, the Nile, the Mahmoudia Canal, the ports at Alexandria, that that there is this that being able to control the the flows, the water flows of the region is really key to uh, to controlling um, the resources of of Egypt. And so that this image of a woman carrying the water, and that's why it's more important when she's carrying the water jug because that has the, the it references those waterways. And then I also, um, for through a feminist lens, uh, interpret this rounded water jug as referencing also the powerful flows of female reproduction um, in menstruation and uh, childbirth and uh, breastfeeding. So that these kind of the powerful flows of the woman are are uh, reflected in those powerful waterways of Egypt, and it reflects this anxiety around uh, around those resources and that's what gives her that extra potency that carries her through um and and still today i would you know occasionally we'll see these sorts of images about egypt or in egypt um and it is certainly continues on um in in visual culture to today thank you for all of that alex and i was wondering as a final question for our listeners could you share with us what you're currently working on and what we can look forward to in the future from you? Yeah, that's the million dollar question that everyone wants to know. Uh, so I just finished editing a volume with my colleague, Professor Margaret Graves from the University of Indiana um, and or Indiana, sorry, Indiana University. And uh, that is called Making Modernity in the Islamic Mediterranean. So definitely taking up a lot of the issues uh, from chapter one, chapter five of the book. But we have a really great set of scholars who've contributed articles about um, the Islamic Mediterranean world and material culture and architecture. Uh, and I have an essay in there about the Muhammad Ali Mosque in which I, instead of seeing the Muhammad Ali Mosque as a the end of the uh, Ottoman tradition, I see it as the beginning of the modernist tradition. So um, that that is something that you guys can look forward to, I guess. Um, so hopefully that will be out next year. Um, and then I'm working on also an article about K.A.C. Creswell, who is an important Islamic architectural historian and has a huge trove of photographs uh, scattered about some really important institutions in the United States, in London, Italy, and Egypt. And for my next book project, I'm aiming to write about 
art and Islam in America. So that is still at the very early stages, um, but I am excited to switch focus back to back to the place in which I'm living <laughs> for a change. Well, we're very excited to see the fruits uh, of your work. And once again, um, Modernism on the Nile, Art in Egypt between the Islamic and the Contemporary by Alex Dika Segerman. Get your hands on it now. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to all of our listeners. Um, have a great one. <laughs>